This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Ten years ago, the Catholic Church faced a startling situation, unprecedented in modern times. The Pope, Pope Benedict, resigned. And when his successor was appointed, Pope Francis, he too was a break from the past. He was the first Pope from Latin America, in fact, the first non-European Pope for a millennium. And Francis seemed far more willing to engage with contemporary problems. He wrote an encyclical, a letter to the faithful, on the climate emergency, talking about consumerism and irresponsible development. Francis also struck a very different tone on gay rights. But as much as Francis has been more open than previous popes on a series of issues, the reaction against him from traditionalists has been all the more outspoken and truly angry at times. How exactly did the culture wars come to the Vatican and the Catholic Church? Paul Eli just published a piece about a decade of Francis's leadership. Paul, after a decade, what stands out for you as the most notable efforts and achievements of this pope? Well, Pope Francis has done so much on the environment, on the opening of the church uh, to non-Christian religions, on focusing the church outward toward the poor, on cleaning up the structure of the Vatican and making a lot of fresh appointments both in Rome and around the world. But what really stands out to me is the openness that he's brought to the church, a church that felt closed and locked down after years of fairly authoritarian leadership uh, under John Paul II and then Benedict XVI, is now open and showing signs of change. Paul, now I'm looking at this from obviously way outside the church, but it seems from what I understand, from what I read, that opposition to the Pope is much blunter than ever before, anything we've ever seen. Sometimes it's even contemptuous of what he's trying to do. Please talk about that. So, leaders in the church who've had grievances with him have expressed them in any number of ways. One has written a series of incendiary letters criticizing um, Pope Francis in all sorts of ways and spread them through the internet, 
gaining the approval of a lot of traditionalist bishops and some cardinals too. Another evidently wrote a letter and had it distributed anonymously under a pseudonym saying that Pope Francis' pontificate has been a disaster, insinuating that everybody thinks this, and then ticking off all the things that have made it disastrous. So there's secret letters, there's open letters, broadcasters, especially on the EWTN television network, suggesting that Francis is a heretic or something like that. Now, in their opposition to Pope Francis, the traditionalists have a lot on their side. Uh, They really believe that he's wrong to relax and open things up in the way that he's done. They've got a lot of doctrine, a lot of history, and a pretty strong precedent of the two previous popes on their side. And on top of that, and this is the real twist, they're opposing Francis in a church that, because he's made it more open, uh, they're, they're free to do so. He's not shutting them down in the way that one of his predecessors might. So they're taking advantage of the open church that he's brought about and using that openness to openly criticize him. Paul, you spoke with a number of people in different relations to the church while writing about Francis, including a bishop in the state of Connecticut. Tell me about him. When people in the church talk about the next generation of leaders in the church in big archdiocese like New York, the name Frank Caggiano often comes up. I first met Bishop Caggiano, who's now the Bishop of Bridgeport, when I was reporting an article on clerical sex abuse for the magazine a few years back. He's a native of Brooklyn, where I live, and spent years in various uh, positions in the church in New York, really getting to know the nuts and bolts of how a big city church works. For all that, and through his participation in various World Youth Days, he's got his eye on the next generation of people in the church, uh, the church's future. Bishop Frank, uh, you said, and this was on your podcast, that Pope Francis has been a counterbalance to Pope John Paul II and to Pope Benedict XVI. What do you mean by that? Yeah, um, Pope John Paul, who is now among the saints, he very much made a priority the, the clarity of the teaching of what the church holds. And it was sorely needed when he became Pope. And Pope Benedict, his genius, God rest his soul, was that he was a master catechist. That in many ways, he took the very complex notions that John Paul would teach in his encyclicals, which many times caused me to pause and read and reread and reread because of his, of his deep philosophical training and make them accessible to the average person. Now, Pope Francis complements that. How? He's complementing the truth with what I'm going to say, the call also to do what Ephesians 4 says, which is to live the truth in love or in mercy or in encounter, whatever word you wish. It is what John Paul and Benedict and Francis together, when you hold them together, you're painting a fuller picture of the human condition, its brokenness, the need for people to be accompanied in their suffering, in mercy, in acceptance, in welcome, but at the same time leading them to a destination. And unfortunately, we live in a time where people are not comfortable seeing the full picture, but would like to emphasize only half the picture. And that's when we kind of get into trouble. But on to particular conflicts. I mean, Pope Francis 
uh, has uh, done things that um, you could understand why other bishops w- would would respond uh, to him. Mm-hmm. His uh, position on gay people, he's leave, leaving the teaching alone, but suggested in various ways that there's got to be a much uh, more open pastoral outreach towards gay people. Uh, is that effective in your view? Well, I think it's a longstanding position of the church. I think what's what's new, if there's something new, is that he is highlighting it as as a pastoral priority. But I think, for example, the fact that even the catechism of the church uh, speaks of the need to welcome those who have same-sex attraction, gay and lesbian, Catholics, and others. And it also speaks of the the sin of discrimination against those who may be gay or lesbian or, or any sort of discrimination of any type. It's clear. I think where, where the difficulty has been is how do you do that in a way where we're not just giving lip service to say you are welcome, but also we engage in the issues that really burn in their hearts. And how do we respond to those without necessarily abandoning what the church has held as its teachings for centuries. That is where you have this legitimate disagreement among voices in the church. Pope Francis has spoken to the need for the uh, church to involve women in leadership roles Mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. You've done that. You've gone boldly. You've named a woman, Eleanor Sowers, as the parish life coordinator at St. Anthony of Padua Mm -hmm. in Fairfield. Now that's essentially she's the person in charge of the parish. What should Pope Francis be doing along these lines to um, bring women into uh, greater leadership roles in the church? Well, you know what, Paul? I think if you look at the record of what he has done, even at the Vatican, um, he is beginning to put women in significant positions of leadership. For example, Sister Natalie's in the Synod office. Sister Natalie Bequart, right? Yes. She is a voting member of the Synod. That's the first... In, in, to my knowledge, in history, that she is a full voting member. This is the and Synod of Bishops, say, which has to do with the appointment of uh, bishops and with other clergy, is that right? Correct, right? And with the Synod on Synodality, when she sits at the Synod, she will be voting as an equal to the bishops, which is a first. To what extent do, can we see it growing? Can we see uh, Sister Natalie leading the congregation for bishops or a woman of... Uh, like her becoming a bishop at some point? My hunch is that that would not happen anytime soon. So just to be clear, this is um, all that you're setting out is based on the understanding that um, the ordained ministry is going to be restricted to men, and so men are priests, and then men can be bishops. So if you're going to look for roles for women, it's going to be um, non-ordained roles. Yeah, I do, I do not envision that for whatever reason— I mean, we could talk about it too if you wish, but I do not imagine that women would be called to ordained priesthood in the Catholic Church. And one could argue the pros and cons of that. I think there are, there are theological reasons for that. I do not imagine that happening. Uh, certainly not my lifetime. I'm 64 years old. It is not going to happen in the next, whatever, 20 years, or 25 years that I have left. That is not going to happen. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. More to come.
WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. Hi, I'm Ross Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where hundreds of researchers make new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. Learn more about their momentum at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Professor Kathleen Cavaney of Boston College Law School is right at the center of so many of the conflicts uh, in the Church of the United States today. She teaches law at Boston College. She's also trained in theology two disciplines that make her a match for the male bishops who lead the church. At Boston College and before that at Notre Dame Law School, uh, she was colleagues and rubbed shoulders with many of the most aggressive traditionalists in the Catholic Church today. And that's one reason that I always get so much out of our, our conversations. Kathy, welcome. It's a delight to be here. In a comment that I've written for The New Yorker, I note that Pope Francis's election was unexpected. And then I go on to propose or argue that a pretty steady run of unexpected developments through his pontificate has uh, brought about a church that's more open and more dynamic than the church that preceded it under John Paul and Benedict. What do you think? I think that the, the mark of, remember, from John Paul through Benedict, you had almost an extended papacy under much the same vision because Benedict was such an enormous part of John Paul II's, you know, intellectual program. Not that they didn't have differences. He but was working for him. He was, he was the working prefect for him. of he the was, Congregation for Doctrine, and right. they were elbow to elbow, I guess. Right. And then when people got Benedict, they thought, well, we're just going to continue in this line for the immediate future. I mean, it could have continued from 2005 to 2000, late 2022, right? He died on December uh, 31st, Benedict uh, did, that is. So when Francis comes in and isn't out of that mode, um, is someone who really didn't expect to be Pope. Um, my image of Francis is the image they had of him sort of sitting on the subway, you know, in, in Argentina and, you know, just going about his business as a cardinal who was focusing on, you know, caring for the poor in his own region. And then— So that's a great image. And he's, he's wearing black. I think he's wearing yeah. a dark overcoat. 
He's got bags right. under his eyes. The subway right. looks much like the subway in New York. And he was known at the time for living simply and traveling to the outskirts uh, by public transport. And so this is an image of Pope Francis you know, prior to his election and all that has happened subsequent. And that that's really stands out in your mind. It stands out in my mind because I think, you know, I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of a cynical person in some way. You know, so like when you look at like the Supreme Court justices and that, you know, they all have to live a certain way, get a certain path in order to make it, you know, to the position that they want. The career um, ladder. You know, same thing. Yeah, the career ladder. Same thing with cardinals, right? You know, you you if if you have to do the career ladder. Same thing if you're a cardinal and you want to be a pope. And this is someone who was not living this life because he had ambitions of being pope. You know, he thought his chance was over. So he was living how he thought he should live before God, and that was simply and in 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 an encounter with the poor. You've written that since Francis was elected 10 years ago, we've seen a divide among the U.S. bishops, not between liberals and conservatives so much as between what you call culture warrior bishops and culture of encounter bishops. Uh, Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Well, I think it means a couple of things. Um, I think for both uh, uh, Pope John Paul II, Pope St. John Paul II, and Pope Benedict, the main problem that the church faced in the West was a kind of moral relativism, a sense that the moral norms that protected the dignity of the human being and the community were being eroded by uh, capitalistic liberalism. And and they saw a very stark choice. And Pope uh, John Paul II um, issued an encyclical, I think it was in 1995, called Evangelium Vitae, the culture, you know, the gospel of life, which set the gospel of life on the one hand against, you know, uh, death, a culture of life against a culture of death. and Which he identified that, with uh, uh, liberal, progressive, capitalist, uh, anything-goes society in places like the United States. Anything-goes society. Exactly. And the marks of the culture of death were, you know, uh, each individual gets to decide what's best for them, acceptance of autonomy and choices of abortion, contraception, um, uh, assisted suicide, euthanasia, but also lack of care for the poor, too. That part of it was missing when it was encountered. And versus a culture of left, of, of life, rather, which prohibited behavior like abortion and euthanasia, but also provided support for the vulnerable, you know, a great support for families. So, you know, what happened in the United States was that the culture wars that were marking the United States um, were kind of fused with John Paul II's uh, culture of life versus culture of death and parceled out to each Party. So many bishops, many conservative Catholics saw the Republican Party as advancing the culture of life and the Democratic Party as the culture of death. Now, if you just look at John Paul II's encyclical, that's not 
you know, that's not an accurate parsing of of, of the parties um, because it, uh, it's true that the Republican Party opposed abortion and euthanasia, but the Democratic Party called for all the social support for the vulnerable. But that's how it got configured in the U.S., culture of life, Republican Party, culture of death, Democratic Party. And then once you have that as your frame, then some bishops start to enforce that frame, um, sometimes by threatening to deny communion, as we've seen happen. So those are the culture warrior bishops taking yes. a diminished reading of John Paul II's vision and applying it to American politics. So then the culture of encounter is a, an expression and a, a way of seeing things associated with Pope Francis. Can you explain that and then how it how it, it works itself out in the mission of certain of the bishops that Francis has appointed? Well, I think that the conservatives are worried. I think that, you know, the big problem that, that John Paul and Benedict saw, moral relativism, that was kind of pushed back against by their culture wars is not appreciated by Pope Francis. That's what they're – I think they're, they're fear. He doesn't care about the truth. Right. That's what they worry about. In my view, however, Francis recognizes that the problem is is much deeper than moral relativism, that the problem is actually moral nihilism. Moral nihilism says on an existential level, nothing matters. The question of truth doesn't even come up because nothing matters. And I think Pope Francis's culture of encounter— I am going to encounter you. I am going to say that you matter in your wholeness is a, a response to the deeper problem of moral nihilism. So given all this, that we have culture of encounter as really one of the most important ideas to come out of Pope Francis' pontificate and his attempt to push beyond the culture wars, uh, it, it it's rich, isn't it, that his pontificate has coincided with moment of great intensity in the culture wars driven by Catholic public figures, traditionalist Catholics for the most part. Uh, isn't that right? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think some of this is, you know, is a parochialism of America. The I mean, North America, not the whole America, but the American, North American bishops, I think, have uh, see the world, not all of them, but, you know, through the frame of American politics. And because the culture of life versus culture of death had gotten fed into American politics, um, they can't see how what Pope Francis is doing in the culture of encounter is actually a continuation in a new context, in some ways, of what Pope John Paul II was doing. They view him as an opposition to that. And that's the problem, right? Because what happened is Pope Francis looks like he, you know, unlocked Pandora's box uh, and is allowing conversation about things that they don't think that people should talk about. Um, he's also, I think, decentering academic theology um, in a helpful way. I mean, what he is ultimately saying is something that the church teaches, which is faith is an encounter with a human person. Faith is an encounter with Jesus Christ, mediated by the church. But there's a reality here. Faith isn't simply 
repeating a proposition that's included in the catechism that that on its uh, on its own isn't life-giving. So Pope Francis recognizes that the church isn't dead. You know, the, the the church is the living faith of the dead, not the dead faith of the living. That's Kathleen Cavaney, a professor in theology and law at Boston College. And we heard earlier from Bishop Frank Caggiano. Paul Eli has written for The New Yorker since 2014, and he's a senior fellow at Georgetown University. You can read him on Pope Francis and much more at newyorker.com. That's our program for today. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards, with additional music by Alexis Quadrado and Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Brita Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Ngofen Imputabuele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Harrison Keithline and Meher Bhatia. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.